Bridger was tall, fully six feet high, erect, thin, wiry, and sunburnt almost to the complexion of an Indian. With a face noble and expressive of generosity, dark brown hair, and liquid hazel eyes, bright almost to blackness. In form, he was straight as an arrow, wore moccasins, and, as an Indian, turned his toes as he walked slightly inward. So strikingly did his manners conform to those of the wild denizens of the forest. This was the description given of Jim Bridger in the fall of 1839 as he returned to the settlements for the first time in nearly two decades. Following the rendezvous, he accompanied Andrew Drips back to St. Louis with the last haul of beaver plues, later claiming that this was the first time he tasted bread in 17 years. Gotta wonder how Bridger felt, leaving the clean air of the mountains and suddenly finding himself immersed in the hustle and bustle of the city. Story goes that he crossed the river and went back to his childhood home, just to look around, I reckon, to reminisce. His parents were long dead, and so was his brother. His sister may or may not have still been alive. So far as I know, historians have not yet uncovered her name, so we're not sure of her fate. If she was alive at this time, it's likely that Jim paid her a visit. Same goes for his old gunsmith boss, Philip Creamer. Sentiments aside, city life weren't for Jim. He got sick as a dog, all burnt up with a fever, and let it be known that he was ready to, quote, go back to his free life in the mountains. His former career as a fur trapper was no longer an option, however. At least not if he wanted to make money and his once pristine mountains were quickly filling up with migrants and preachers, the damn lawyers and bankers sure to follow. Bridger would have to learn to adapt, and adapt he would. Only problem was, there were some western newcomers hell-bent on taking everything that he would build, even if it meant going to war, and even if it meant calling down the Lord's wrath. Got a lot to cover on this episode, and not a lot of time to do it. Go ahead and open up a caffeine-free Diet Coke and gather the sister wives. We're going down to the City of Saints for this one. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Hey, real quick, this is part three in the series on Jim Bridger. If you have not already listened to the previous two installments, there are links for both in the show notes. And if you don't want to wait for part four, the full series is also available in its entirety right now ad free at patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra. While still in St. Louis, Bridger met up with his old friend, the German trapper Henry Frab, and the two partnered up, combining their money and leading a group of men west to trap yet another season, just giving it one last shot. They had run-ins with the Lakota on the way west, crossing the plains, on three separate occasions as the natives tried to extort the trappers for payment. And each time, it was Jim Bridger who rode out to meet him and pacify him. And by pacify, I mean he calmed everybody down and avoided violence. And I think this is what stuck out the most to me when researching Bridger. While he was certainly capable of violence, he wasn't a violent man. He had killed when he had to, but he also knew how to defuse and de-escalate. He never went out of his way to pick a fight, nor did he seem to hold grudges, at least not against the American Indians. He knew them perhaps better than any other non-native who ever lived and was deeply familiar with their beliefs and customs and practices. And more often than not, he was able to talk his way out of trouble if given the opportunity. Bridger and Frab attended the 1840 rendezvous on the Green River, the last official rendezvous, where Jim was reunited with his wife Cora and daughter Marianne. Now, this didn't verify, but it's likely Jim went with Frab and Joseph Walker to California that fall. If he did, they would have reached Los Angeles by February of 1841 and stay there until mid-April. 
Once back in the mountains, Bridger and Frapp constructed Fort Bridger. The first Fort Bridger, that is. Uh, there would ultimately be three of them. And the idea behind this fort was to be a place for Bridger to trade out of with the various friendly tribes, as well as serving as a base of operations of sorts to keep a roof over the head of his wife and child while he was away. Now, this fort was on the Green River in present-day Wyoming, a few miles south of Big Sandy, where, just looking at a map, it would appear the Seedskadee National Wildlife Refuge now is. Can't wait for the emails telling me how badly I just butchered the word Seedskadee. Seedskadee. If you shake your seeds, get eat three times, you're playing with it. All right. That summer, Frab would be killed during a fight with a combined force of Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, not far from present-day Savory, Wyoming. He went down fighting, and according to fellow trapper Jim Baker, the German, quote, was the ugliest-looking dead man I ever saw, all covered with blood, rotten front teeth, and a horrible grin, end quote. Also that summer, Jim sent his daughter Marianne to the Whitman Mission in Oregon started by the missionaries I mentioned last episode, Marcus Whitman and his wife Narcissa. A few months later, Jim and Cora welcomed another child, a boy that they named Felix Francis Bridger. All was good at home, but things were turning more and more violent on the plains as the various tribes got themselves all worked up for a number of reasons. I mean, hell, dealer's choice at this point, right? Wagon trains were now passing through, headed to Oregon. The various diseases wrecking havoc. One thing to keep in mind when thinking about the so-called Indian Wars is how quickly things were changing for these people. Whereas some tribes didn't mind the fur trappers passing through on occasion, they weren't happy with the wagon trains of immigrants and gold seekers now flooding their hunting grounds. And they sure as hell didn't like seeing their loved ones dying slow deaths as their bodies were ravaged by disease. There's something to contemplate. Following old Frapp's death, Bridger would team up with another longtime friend, Luis Vasquez. He also abandoned his first fort and erected a new one about 40 miles or so south of Black's Fork on the Green River. If you're looking at a modern map, this is in southwestern Wyoming, just north of present-day Mountain View. And finally, the third Fort Bridger was raised in 1843, pretty much in the same area. My understanding is that they moved it from a beach overlooking Black's Fork down to the grassy bottomland below. Now, this was Shoshone territory, but technically also Mexico. In addition to being along an ancient native trading route that would later be adopted by wagon trains headed west. That being the case, this fort would allow Bridger to sell his wares and services to the pilgrims headed to the promised land. Two double log cabins were built, as was a blacksmith shop, a trading room, and a stockade for the livestock. And as previously stated, this also gave Jim a little peace of mind knowing that Cora and young Felix were relatively safe within the fort's log walls when he was out roaming. Then again, this was the American frontier in the 1840s, and you could only keep your family so safe. Case in point, that very year, a large war party of Cheyenne, led by a damn renegade named Louis Revere, struck the fort. They killed a native woman and her child, in addition to a Salish man guarding the horses, and made off with 70 head before Jim could so much as level his rifle. They also hit the nearby Shoshone, killing a few of them and making off with an additional 100 horses. At the same time, Jim was also having financial problems. He was in debt and hadn't made any real money since 1838. As such, he was finding it hard to secure credit for the supplies that he would need to trade with the passing wagon trains. Yet despite not making a profit, he still trapped beaver, his old bread and butter. And yes, it was still dangerous. He led 13 men to work the waterways of the Salt Lake Valley in the spring of 1844 and lost two killed to the hostiles. Luckily, more immigrants than ever traveled west that year, and the hard-working Bridger was able to make a little money, at least. 
His blacksmith shop did brisk business, and he and Vasquez kept plenty of horses to trade to the travelers. Usually the deal was that he'd swap out one of his well-fed mounts for two skinny pilgrim nags. He and Vasquez also took to keeping various livestock on hand, up to and including oxen, cattle, goats, and sheep. Late that summer, Bridger would lead some men south to present-day Arizona to trap, a land they called Coyoterra, and even further south to the Gulf of California. Not stopping to winter, they traveled north from there up to present-day Utah, passing through the desert as they did so. In late 1845 or early 1846, another daughter was born to Jim and Cora, Mary Josephine, and sadly Cora would die not long after. A very tragic death, by the way. The story passed down to the family was that Cora was bitten by a wolf and inflicted with rabies. She went mad and disappeared into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Got to imagine there's much more to the story than that, but unfortunately, that's all we got to work with. The constant trauma these people dealt with on just a day-to-day basis, man. I think it would break most of us nowadays. Now, this is also around the time that a man by the name of Lansford Hastings paid Fort Bridger a visit. Oh boy, here we go. The Oregon Trail came out of Independence, Missouri, right? It led west through modern-day Nebraska and Wyoming and passed North Bridger's Fort before swinging northwest through what's now southern Idaho where Fort Hall was located. And then on into Oregon and the Promised Land. And then you had the California Trail, which branched off from the Oregon at Fort Hall, Idaho, and snaked southwest along the Humboldt River through what we now call Nevada and then on to the Golden State. Well, this Lansford Hastings guy had what he called a shortcut. It wasn't. In all actuality, it added 20 miles, but whatever. And this shortcut went straight due west from Fort Bridger, linking up with the California Trail not far from where Elko, Nevada now stands, thus bypassing the need to go north to Fort Hall. Cool. Only problem was this route, also known as the Hastings Cutoff, meant that you had to pass over the Wasatch Mountains and travel a good 80 waterless miles through the Great Salt Desert. It's a journey that had previously been taken, and although arduous, it was possible. That said, those of you over the age of 40 might remember the old Oregon Trail computer game, and how you had to carefully choose what time of the year to embark on your journey. If you started too early, there wouldn't be enough water or game. Or maybe there'd be too much water with the river swollen from snowmelt. Start too late and you'll get caught up by the snow and also have a hard time finding game. I mean, shit, you know half your party's going to get dysentery and cholera anyway, why add to it? Likewise, in real life with the Hastings and California trails. You had to time your travels just right or you'd get stuck up there in the mountains and freeze to death. Enter in the Reed and Donner parties out of Illinois. They, along with their employees, arrived at Fort Bridger on July 27, 1846, with plans to take the Hastings Cutoff. And our very own Jim Bridger advised the travelers as to the condition of the trail that lay ahead. Mr. Bridger informs me that the route we designed to take is a fine level road, plenty of water and grass with the exception of the desert, wrote James Reed in a letter home, shortly before his doomed party set out to their fate. Furthermore, a member of their wagon train, Edwin Bryant, had previously ridden on ahead and noticed how rough the cutoff truly was and left a note at Fort Bridger telling the Donners and Reeds not to take the trail. He thought it would be too hard for wagons, especially with so many women and children. Well, the Donner party did not receive this note of warning, and after conferring with Bridger, they went on ahead. And we all know how that turned out. So why wasn't Bridger more honest about the dangers that lie ahead? And why did he not deliver the note of warning telling the travelers to take another route? 
Jim knew every inch of every possible trail that these pilgrims could have taken, and he knew damn well the conditions of Hastings' cutoff. You would think that he'd talk them into going up north to Fort Hall and thus making it through to California before the snow begins to fly. Or at very least, just to be honest about what lay ahead. So what the hell happened? Well, there are some that think that this was greed. The idea being that if more people used the Hastings cutoff, it would mean more business for Fort Bridger and thus more money in Jim's pocket. Historian and author Jerry Insler disagrees. Mr. Insler contends that Bridger's description of the road was accurate. A cartographer named T.H. Jefferson was in a party ahead of the Donners and, as he was mapping out the route, described the desert portion as, quote, road good, a level plain, followed by, quote, the journey is attended with some hardships and provocation, nothing, however, but that can be overcome. The most difficult portion of the whole journey is the passage of the California mountains, particularly the descent on the western side, end quote. Insler also states that Bridger was well known to give extensive commentary whenever asked about various routes or trails and entire maps, accurate maps, had been created based solely on Jim's words. The idea that all he said about the cutoff was that it was a fine level road doesn't jive with his normal mode of communication. It's more likely that Bridger expanded on the trail a good deal, but Reed simply didn't jot down Jim's every word in that letter. Furthermore, the idea that he would have withheld pertinent information to these travelers for his own personal gain would have been out of character. And I got to admit, I tend to agree. I mean, it'd be one thing if Bridger had a past habit of being less than honest, or even a willingness to put innocent people's lives at risk just to make a buck, but I have not seen that to be the case. As for the warning letter, I have no idea. Years later, James Reed would blame Luis Vasquez, Bridger's partner, for concealing the note in order to secure more business for the fort, but it does not appear that he ever cast any suspicion towards Jim himself. Per Jerry Insler, once again, speaking of the Donner Party, quote, They set out too late. They took too many breaks. They had plenty of money but did not hire an experienced guide to keep them moving. They banished James Reed, and they stayed and rested for five days before trying to cross the final summit, end quote. He then cites Sam Brannan as saying the party consisted of people who, by quarreling and fighting among themselves, delayed time until they got caught in the mountains and could not extricate themselves. Finally, you have Reed himself who admitted, quote, The disasters of the company to which I belong should not deter any person from coming who wishes to try his fortune. Our misfortunes were the result of bad management. Had I remained with the company, I would have had the whole of them over the mountains before the snow would have caught them and those who have gotten through have admitted this to be true, end quote. Look, I got no dog in this fight. I guess it's possible that Jim could have misled these people for his own monetary gain, but once again, this does seem to be in direct contradiction to how he normally conducted himself. Which brings us to the next leg of the journey. In 1847, Jim was bound for Fort Laramie when he saw a large party approaching not far from Little Sandy. This group, as it turns out, was 143 members of the Church of Latter-day Saints led by Brigham Young. And in a tradition that we all hold to this very day, Bridger would soon regret not turning around and immediately running at the sight of approaching Mormon missionaries. Oh, I'm kidding, Mormons. Don't get your magical underwear all up in a bunch. You know y'all used to be assholes, right? Uh, on a serious note, I love Mormons. I'm not being sarcastic. Uh, they are some of the finest people I've ever met, and I don't think I've ever had a single negative interaction with them. They make great neighbors, great friends, and I've found them all, at least the ones I've known, to be genuinely nice people. 
Their church, however, does have a screwed up history. So trigger warning. If you are a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, I'm probably going to talk a little smack about your predecessors coming up, especially Brigham Young. Now, this group that Bridger met was just an advance party, searching for a place to put down roots free of religious persecution, a home where they could live as they saw fit, and I don't blame them. Jim ended up pitching camp early and invited Young and some elders over to talk. He advised them at length on the Great Basin area and corrected their maps, showing that the Great Salt Lake and Utah Lake were indeed two separate bodies of water. He described the natives that called the area home, and he advised the pilgrims to ascertain whether or not they can grow wheat or corn before putting down roots. When they went their separate ways, the next morning, Young asked if Bridger would guide him, but Jim had business to attend at Fort Laramie, and he would not return in time to do so. So all in all, a good first impression, right? As time went on, even more Mormons would come, most of them stopping at Fort Bridger along the way. And the rest is history. As we all know, the area around Great Salt Lake is now Mormon Central. Just a bunch of saints minding their own business, soaking and jump pumping. Only problem was, for some damn reason, Brigham Young just flat out did not like Jim Bridger. As quickly as just a year after their meeting, Young was spreading lies and claiming that Jim had set the quote-unquote Indians upon he and his flock. Bridger found out about this, saddled up a mule, and personally rode down to Salt Lake City telling Brigham Young to say it to his face. And no, that part's not true. Uh, but Jim did send Brigham a letter that he had dictated, which read as follows. I am truly sorry that you should believe any reports about me having said that I would bring any Indians or any number of Indians upon you or any of your community. Such a thought never entered my head, and I trust to your knowledge and good sense to know that if a person is desirous of living a good friendship with his neighbors, he would not undertake such a mad project. I am desirous of maintaining an amicable friendship with the people in the valley. And should you want a favor in my hand at any time, I shall always think myself happy in doing it for you. From your friend and well-wisher, James Bridger. P.S. Is it true you really have magic underwear? Because my long johns are really starting to chafe and I could use a change. P.P.S. Are you as excited about the next season of Sister Wives as I am? OMG, I can't wait to see what Cody and Robin do next. Uh, just kidding on the P.S. and P.P.S. The rest of that letter was real, though. And once again, there you have Jim Bridger, the diplomat, trying to defuse the situation. So where did Brigham Young get these wild ideas? And what was it that caused him to turn on Bridger? I'll tell you right after this quick break from this episode's sponsors. Okay, welcome back. So Brigham Young and his flock were indeed having problems with the natives, namely the Ute. And some Ute had already been killed by the Mormons, which sure as hell wasn't helping matters. Furthermore, the Ute were well-armed. I think maybe Young figured that it was Bridger who provided the Ute with said firearms, and maybe he did. Hell, Jim had been trading arms with the indigenous for quite some time. But did he ever arm anyone knowing that they were then going to use the guns to kill Americans? Highly doubtful. Bridger's partner Vasquez had also been in contact with the church leaders, helping to advise them. He wrote a note of his own saying that he knew that they had killed some Ute and that Jim had gone to winter with the tribe, but once he saw how worked up they were, he returned to Fort Bridger. I guess the paranoid Young didn't appreciate these fur traders knowing so much about he and his people's business, and for whatever reason he got it into his head that it was Jim who stirred up the natives, something for which there is absolutely no evidence for. To further highlight Young's insanity, in 1849 Vasquez wrote Brigham and warned him that the Bannocks were upset and planning to raid the Salt Lake area. Brigham read this letter out loud in a council and then weirdly proclaimed, quote, 
I believe I know old Bridger is death on us, and if he knew 400,000 Indians were coming against us, and any man were to let us know, he would cut his throat. Bridger is a backhanded man that can't be understood. Gotta love extreme paranoia coupled with fundamentalist cult-like views. A winning combination that always ends well, right? From there on, things only continued to worsen. In 1850, on the same day that California was admitted to the Union, Utah became a territory, largely in part to all the Mormons who had been settling there over the previous couple of years. Matter of fact, they already had their own state constitution and sort of a de facto government before even becoming a territory. The state of Deseret, I believe they called it. Brigham Young became the first governor of this territory, of course, and began enacting laws already laid out in their own little Mormon constitution. This is when they really started coming at Bridger hard. First, they had given him a quote-unquote tavern license, which allowed him to sell liquor there at his fort, as if Bridger needed such permission. They then revoked the license in 1853 before issuing an arrest warrant for Jim with further claims that he was inciting the Ute and providing them with arms and ammunition to use against Americans. In short, Jim Bridger was being charged with treason, which back in them days was a hanging offense. But what it really boils down to is, according to historian Fred Goins, Brigham Young's growing desire to control the Fort Bridger-Green River area, and that the Mormons were not content to see this lucrative business go to the enrichment of the mountain men. By the way, it wasn't just the fort. Jim had a ferry set up on the Green River as well that was earning money and manned by some of his former fur-trapping buddies. The Mormons wanted the ferry and the fort and the money that both were generating, more than they wanted Bridger himself. He was just an excuse. Finally, Young sent his army of Mormons up there, and while Jim was gone, they attacked the fort, killing a few fur trappers working on the Green River Ferry and destroying all of Bridger's whiskey supply in, quote, small doses. I'll let you figure that one out for yourself. Worth noting that not everybody took this lying down. A month prior, the Mormons had attempted to seize the ferry on Green River, but 50 former mountain men raised their rifles so the Saints went back to Salt Lake City with their tails tucked between their legs only to return with a much larger force. Word got to Bridger that his fort had been seized and that he was a wanted man, so, while he did return to the area, he laid low and camped out in the hills. The clever man he was, he was still able to somehow communicate with his wife, who just so happened to still be in the fort. By the way, good luck to any Mormons attempting to flush Bridger out of those hills. If he didn't want to be found, it was not going to happen. We're talking about a man who piloted fur brigades and trapped beaver and dined on elk all over the entirety of Blackfeet territory for years without losing his hair. Now, I should admit that I sometimes get frustrated with history, selfishly, when it comes to these types of situations. I would love to envision a scenario where Bridger puts the word out, calling in some of his buddies. Maybe Kit Carson and Jim Beckwith and Joe Meek and, oh, I don't know, a few hundred Crow and Shoshone. And they all ride on down to Salt Lake City and pin Brigham Young's ears to the tabernacle. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, this ain't the movies and real life isn't always exciting or just. And remember, although he could be violent, Bridger wasn't a violent man at heart. Ever the diplomat, right? Instead of calling down the thunder, Jim traveled all the way to Washington, D.C. to complain to his representatives in person. Old Broken Hand Fitzpatrick, now an Indian agent, was traveling to the capital to help finalize the treaty of Fort Atkinson, and Bridger accompanied him. Sadly, Fitzpatrick would succumb to pneumonia while there, dying with Jim by his side. And although Bridger was able to speak with the government about his problems with the Mormons, all this did was end up pissing off Brigham Young even further. In the end, it was all for naught. 
The Mormons took Fort Bridger, and short of going to war, Jim had to write it off as a loss. The church would eventually give him some money for his troubles, but not anything near what the fort or the land it was on was worth. And the government did get involved, but all they did was take the fort over for themselves. They claimed to be leasing it from Bridger, but when it came time for payments, they balked, saying that Jim couldn't provide sufficient proof that he was the owner of the fort bearing his name. Okay. This would be a long legal battle, and it would take years following Jim's death for his family to ever receive any sort of compensation. Now, during this entire affair, Bridger just wasn't sitting around twiddling his thumbs. The events I've just described took place over several years. Jim encountered Brigham Young and the first Mormon pilgrims in the summer of 1847, and it would be in the spring or summer of 49 when Young declared that Bridger was, quote, death on us. It would be another four years after that in 1853 when the church labeled Jim a traitor, and that following summer in August when Bridger was away on business was when they seized the fort. So this was a process, and Bridger was a busy man at the time, both in his personal and professional life. If you'll recall, Jim's first wife, Cora, passed away in either 1845 or 46, after giving birth to Josephine. That made three kids for Bridger, the first daughter, Marianne, who was sent to live at the Whitman Mission near present-day Walla Walla, Washington, the boy, Felix, and finally, little Josephine. Somewhere around 1847 or 1848, Bridger would marry for a second time to a Ute lady that some sources say was named Chapita, not to be confused with the Chapita that was married to the famous Ute chief Ure. Don't know anything else about Jim's Chapita. She was likely still a teenager when she and Bridger married, and they'd only have one child, a girl named Virginia, but unfortunately Chapita would pass away a few days later from complications. Shortly thereafter, once again, we don't have any dates here. They sure as hell weren't married to no church. Bridger got hitched to his third wife, a Shoshone girl that he called Mary, and it weren't long before she and Jim welcomed a baby boy into the world, naming him John. A lot of Marys in Jim's life. So far, he's got a daughter named Mary Josephine, another daughter named Mary Elizabeth, and yet another named Mary Ann, and now a wife also named Mary. By the way, many sources list this Mary as being the daughter of Shoshone chief Washaki, but I was unable to verify that. I was also unable to link Jim's marriage to any of these indigenous women to First Lieutenant Aldo Apache Rain, despite his inglorious claims. If you get it, you get it. All total, Bridger would have seven children that we know of, and we will discuss them more, but for now I think it's important to talk about his firstborn, Mary Ann. She was 12 years old in 1847 and had been living with Marcus and Narcissa Whitman for the past six years. I guess technically they were her guardians, but for all intents and purposes, they had basically adopted her. She was referred to by Narcissa as her little girl, sometimes affectionately called her little half-breed. And if the Reverend Marcus was gone, Marianne would often ask, will father come home today? It appears that Marianne had a good life there, as far as the historical evidence shows. Narcissa made her dresses by hand, as well as dolls. She was receiving an education and had two nurturing adults that cared for her. As far as I know, Bridger had never gone up there to visit. Not even sure if Marianne knew of her mother's death a year prior, but that's purely speculation on my part. Judging by Jim's relationships to his other children, he did seem to be an affectionate father. So this entire situation is a little hard to track. I know the idea was for Mary Ann to receive an education, but six years is a long time to go without seeing your kid. I got a little daughter, and I can't imagine that. That said, I do find it hard to believe that Jim and Cora simply abandoned their daughter. 
And there was absolutely no way they could have predicted the tragedy that was about to occur. Now, the Whitman mission was in KU's country. They're in southeastern Washington. I will defer once again to my friends at the podcast How the West Was Fucked. Check out their two-part series on the Whitman Massacre. But don't check out their series on Jim Bridger. Link in the show notes. But long story short, there was trouble. Tensions were on the rise. And then the plague struck the Cayuse in the form of a measles epidemic. One source I found stated that half the tribe died. And a good deal of them were children. There's a lot more involved. Like I said, check out that series if you want the full story. But the Cayuse would, in their anger, attack the Whitman mission. They killed both Marcus and Narcissa, along with 11 others, and took over 50 captives one of which was Bridger's daughter, Marianne. Fur trapper Joe Meek also had a daughter there as well, Helen, and she likewise was taken captive. And unfortunately, she and another child would die in captivity due to an illness. Marianne Bridger survived, though. Uh, Some sources say she may have been used. But she was ransomed back a month following the massacre. During the process of getting her back to civilization, she also became ill and soon passed away. Ironically, it was one of Bridger's former rivals, Peter Ogden, and the Hudson's Bay Company, who secured the release for these hostages. Bridger wouldn't even find out until visited by Joe Meek, who was on his way to Washington to demand justice. Interestingly enough, Meek's cousin Sarah was the then First Lady of the United States and wife of President James K. Polk. Guess maybe Meek thought he could pull some strings. Once again, this is not one of those Hollywood endings. Tragedy struck first to the KU's people at large, and then to the Bridger and Meek households. A war with the KU's ensued, leading to many a death, and in 1850, five KU's men were publicly hanged for their part in the massacre. There were no happy endings or peaceful resolutions for any involved, just grieving parents and orphaned children. But so goes history. And on that bright note, I think we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. So what about Jim's other children? And what's Bridger going to do without a fort? How would he now earn an income? Please join me as we continue our dive into the life and times of Jim Bridger next Wednesday morning. Two more episodes left, by the way. If you're the impatient sort or you hate advertisements as much as I do, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra for the entire series, commercial free. Also, if you're not the kind of guy or gal who subscribes to things, I hear you. You can always support the Wild West extravaganza via buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. No extra on that one, just Wild West. Links to all this in the show notes as well as pertinent articles. Also, as always, there's only so much information I can include, even in a series. But if you would like to go into even greater detail, I leaned heavily on the book Jim Bridger by Jerry Insler. Check it out, link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for spreading the word. Until next time, try not to piss off any Mormons. Adios. OMG, 